Sebastian Schulman is a writer, editor and literary translator from Yiddish, Esperanto and other languages. His translations and original work have appeared in over a dozen literary journals including Two Lines and Words Without Borders. His translation of Spomanka Stimets Esperanto language novel Croatian War Nocturnal was published by Phonem Media in 2017. After several years as the executive director of the leading Yiddish arts and culture organization Kles Canada Sebastian now serves as the director of the special projects and uh, partnerships at the Yiddish Book Center. He lives in Montreal, Quebec. In this episode, he talked about the language Esperanto, its genesis, Esperanto literature and his uh, translation of uh, Croatian War Nocturnal from Esperanto into English. Croatian War Nocturnal is a fictionalized memoir of the wars in former Yugoslavia in the early 1990s, told from the perspective of a Croatian Esperanto activist and teacher. The book consists of short, interconnected episodes describing the daily traumas of war and genocide and their effect on life, family, memory and language. It's an emotional account of a woman trying to make sense of the seeming collapse of the two utopian projects that have framed her life, Yugoslavia and Esperanto. You can buy the book using the link given in the show notes. Please share your feedback on this episode either on the Spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes. You can follow Harshaniyam podcast on Spotify, Apple, or such any of your favorite podcasting apps. Welcome to our podcast, Harshaniyam. Thank you so very much. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, please introduce us to the book, Croatian uh, War Nocturnal. Uh, so today we're talking about uh, Spobenka Stimets and her novel, uh, a fictionalized memoir called Croatian War Nocturnal. It is, uh, as I say, a fictionalized memoir of the wars in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Uh, it follows the life of a, a woman who is a fictional protagonist, but very closely based on the author's uh, own life. Uh, as she experiences these wars uh, on the home front. You know, she is not in battle. She is not uh, a combatant, uh, but she is living through the war. And, and this book is a real entree into the lived experience of, of catastrophe, of, of war uh, lived uh, by those who, who are forced into it, who are not on the front lines, but who live with the war every single day. Okay, before we talk in detail about the author and the book, please tell us about the Yugoslavian war. Uh, so I have to, to preface this by saying I'm not an expert uh, in Yugoslav history or in, in the wars themselves, but in brief, uh, in 1991, with the fall of communism across Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union, in Eastern Europe, and in Yugoslavia, uh, you had drastic changes. Uh, and Yugoslavia was one of the places where these changes became 
absolutely violent. Uh, Yugoslavia was uh, a union of different republics, uh, and each republic had an ethnic character to it. Uh, and when the when the country broke apart, uh, these constituent republics went to war with each other. Uh, and oftentimes, this war is characterized as an ethnic conflict. Uh, the Serbians against the Croatians, uh, the Serbians against the Bosnians. Uh, it's also sometimes thought of as a religious conflict. Serbians are mostly Orthodox Christians. Croatians are Catholic. Bosnians are Muslim. Uh, but there is also uh, an element here that we see across uh, Eastern Europe at this time where elites uh, you know, from these different states, uh, they are losing their authority. They are losing their power. Uh, and this is an attempt to, you know, rally the forces of nationalism, xenophobia, uh, religious strife to hold on to power in the most violent ways. Uh, the, these wars were absolutely devastating, uh, perhaps most remembered for the ethnic cleansing that took place in Bosnia, which is, you know, go, the, the book here does go into some detail about that, although the book is focused uh, of course, primarily on the war in Croatia between Serbia and Croatia, which lasted from 1991 to 1995. And as I say, I'm not an expert here, but the war does bring you directly into this conflict in a way that history books, that other resources really do not. This puts you really at the center. And I, and I should say it was written while the war was going on in 1993. So it is It is both a memoir of the war, it is also a firsthand account, uh, despite the fact that the author has fictionalized much of, much of what's going on in the text, it is also a firsthand account, a primary source of the war itself. Tell us about the author uh, and uh, her other works too. Uh, so Spomengis Stimetz is, uh, she's a wonderful person. Uh, you should know that, uh, you know, that aspect of her personality as a warm and generous and caring person doesn't always come through in this text. And I think listeners should should know that about her. She is an absolute giant in the small but very vibrant world of Esperanto literature today. Uh, all of her writing is characterized by this very sharp, very precise style. Uh, she has a language which is very Un, unadorned, um, sometimes very brusque, but has a deep emotional intensity. Um, her most famous work, the work that she sort of debuted with in the Esperanto world, uh, is called Ombro Sur Interna Pesaggio, which means a shadow on an inner landscape, which is about a, uh, a messy breakup between two lovers in the Esperanto world. Uh, and this is just a very deep psychological work, uh, and all of her works are seemingly very accessible. If you've only studied Esperanto a small amount of time, a, a short while, uh, because of her very uh, unadorned and, and almost staccato uh, style, you can start reading it. But if you really pay attention, there's a great deal of complexity. There's a lot going on in, in her works. And that's one of the reasons why she is so popular, because she's able to reach readers on, on multiple levels. Uh, 
Um, she also writes in her native Croatian. Um, I'm less familiar with with her work in that language, uh, but she, while she does write in Croatian, she is a, an absolute star uh, in in the Esperanto world. She's been recognized with Lifetime Achievement Awards. She has taught Esperanto in many different places, and she's a real uh, celebrity in in that community. And it's a real pleasure to work with her uh, and to bring her her work to to new readers. Now, I looked up uh, on Google as to what is the meaning of Esperanto. Esperanto means hope. So I was wondering, uh, she could write in Croatian too, right? Why the choice of uh, writing this book in Esperanto? And tell us about the language Esperanto, its origins too. Yes, absolutely. So uh, so Esperanto was invented. It's, it's an artificial language. It was invented by... Uh, a Jewish doctor uh, from to, from the city of Bialystok, which is today in Poland, then was in the Russian Empire, uh, and he, as a Jewish person living in that time and place, had no rights. He, you know, Jews were restricted in the kinds of professions they could do and in, in where they could live. Uh, you know, they they, they were uh, a downtrodden people in Eastern Europe, and he was looking for solutions to to the Jewish question, as it was called. Uh, and one of his ideas, and, and the idea that he stuck with the longest, was this idea of a neutral language. There's this famous quote of his where he says, as a Jew, I speak one language at home. I use another language in the synagogue. I speak with the government in yet another language. On the street, I'm using a fourth and a fifth and a sixth language. And nowhere am I considered, you know, a full human being. And he said that if there was a neutral language, a second language for all, that was that was this kind of blank space where people could come together. It would facilitate inter-ethnic communication. It would be a tool that wouldn't solve all the world's problems, but it would bring us closer to peace and to understanding. Uh, now that is sort of one of these core ideas about Esperanto, the community of Esperanto speakers today, doesn't always subscribe to that entire program, uh, but it is a very uh, eclectic, eccentric, uh, wide-ranging, global community of people, uh, some two million speakers, according to some estimates, and uh, very much grounded in this ethos of exchange, this internationalism, at the core of, of Esperanto culture and identity. And Spomenka Stimets adopts this language as, as her main form of creative expression, her main literary vehicle, uh, for many reasons. Uh, in a certain respect, she is sort of reacting towards global English, you know, English as this language of empire. English is this language that almost erases other cultures. Esperanto is doing something different. So she adopts Esperanto as her literary language as a more equal playing field. But specifically for this book, and what I think is so fascinating, so captivating about this book, she's using Esperanto to critique 
the international community, to critique the Esperanto community, to say, you're not paying attention to this conflict. You're not, you know, you're not, you're not looking at us. You're, you're going to your conferences. You're going to your events. Uh, you're thinking everything's fine because we have this wonderful community. And here are people in this community that are, are suffering. So it's, it's at once, uh, you know, she's using Esperanto as this literary vehicle. She is using Esperanto as an instrument of critique. Uh, but as you say, Esperanto means hope. Zamenhof, this, this Polish doctor, Polish Jewish doctor who invented the language, his pseudonym when he released this language into the world, was Doctoro Esperanto, the one who hopes. Espero means hope, Esperanto, the one who hopes. So there's this deep optimism embedded in the language. And uh, Spomenka, uh, to write about war, to write about the collapse of the country, the culture, the world that she's a part of, in a language that she's devoted her life to that is also not serving its its stated purpose. Uh, it's a very powerful message of critique, but it's also a deep and radical optimism to say that, you know, despite the war, despite the catastrophe, despite all the hardships, there is an ember that still burns. There is uh, a glimmer of hope in Esperanto. Uh, and it's a very powerful, complex image that she brings in the writing itself and by using this language to write in. And um, I don't know, I could, I, it, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. I could keep, uh, you could read this book, you could read Esperanto literature forever. It's, it's an incredible world and uh, one that most people don't know about. And, and that's part of my motivation as a translator to bring this worldview, this culture uh, that so few people can access uh, to a wider range of readers. Now, why nocturnal in the name? Uh, so a lot of people ask me this question. It's, it's you're not the first one. Um, so I have to start at, at the beginning. In Esperanto, the title of the book is Croata Milita Noct Libro. Uh, literally, this means Croatian war or military night book. Esperanto is built on these roots. You can take parts of words and make them into any part of speech. You can put parts of words together to create new ideas, new concepts, new words, nilogisms. Uh, and Spomenka, in, in Spomenka Stimetz's work, she does not do this wordplay as often as other Esperanto writers. And yet she does it in her title. Noct Libro literally means night book. And it's a play on words. Uh, in Esperanto, as in many European languages, Tag Libro, day book, is what we might call in English a journal or a diary. Uh, and etymologically, linguistically speaking, the opposite of journal which just means of the day, like in French, the word jour. Uh, the opposite of journal is nocturnal. So if you know the title in Esperanto, which 
I assume that none of my English readers do. But if if you do, I'm doing the same kind of of, of wordplay here. Uh, but what I'm trying to evoke for the English reader is is multifaceted. Uh, first of all, a nocturnal is a kind of music, right? It's a it's a style. It's a piece of music. You think of a nocturne or a nocturnal, usually a short, dark, atmospheric piece of music. This is what this this short, very atmospheric book tries to recreate. Uh, it also reflects the circumstances in which it was written. Uh, she wrote this book at night, uh, hiding in her bathroom on this primitive translation computer machine that could type in Esperanto. Uh, so it is literally a nocturnal book. Uh, she is writing it at night. And then, just like it does in Esperanto, the title kind of raises a question for the reader. In Esperanto, it's a new word. Uh, and you understand it immediately as an Esperanto speaker, but something's unusual about it. So the fact that you and, and other people are asking about what is nocturnal, what is this, it, it kind of does the same thing. It opens the reader up to a question, what, what could this possibly mean? What is going on? And I hope by the time you, you turn the page, turn the cover, and you read the book, it becomes more and more apparent what this means, why this title. Most of the stories are uh, written, uh, not only she wrote it in the night, but they happen in the night time. Uh, one of the prime examples is the story Alam. So there is a particular paragraph uh, in the story where uh, first time she hears the alarm, bombing alarm, she wanted to get into the bunker, which is underneath her uh, house. Now, before she leaves, uh, for a couple of seconds, uh, she looks back. The way she described that particular particular event is deeply moving, actually. Very well written. Uh, uh, that's one of my, my favorite and one of the most uh, emotional parts of the book, book for me. So uh, the, the narrator has returned to Croatia from abroad a couple weeks after the war has started and she's in this apartment building and everybody is already accustomed to these sirens that go off multiple times a night, sometimes during the day. Uh, and they have to gather their things and run down to the basement, to this, to this bunker. And she is a newbie. She, she doesn't really know what to do in this situation yet. So she's very frazzled and, she she and everybody is is running around her and that moment that you describe I, I think it's one of the key moments in the book she is about to run down the stairs and she's stuffing her bag and she turns and she looks back at her apartment and she says you know how could i leave this place this place where i am most strongly myself and and it, she's leaving herself behind. She doesn't know when she will return. She doesn't know if she can return. And she she must leave. Uh, and and she runs down the stairs. And uh, she ends up in this bunker. And there's all of this this frenetic energy as she's running. And then the bunker there's silence. And it's just she 
with her neighbors waiting. And, and it's, you know, these people that maybe they've never spoken, maybe they only said hello to each other in the hallway, and now they have to have these real and very difficult conversations in the most trying circumstances. You know, they don't know if, if a bomb is going to fall on them, and they're just sitting there waiting, and, and the, the conversations they have are, you know, sometimes a little too careful, sometimes not careful at all. They're, they're skirting around big issues. Uh, and it's, and it's this horrible moment of, of waiting and sitting in the unknown. And, uh, you know, it, it, unfortunately the book is so relevant today. You know, it, it, you know, there, there are people sitting in war zones all over the world that are going through this very same, same thing. Um, and, and, you know, they're sitting there listening to the radio and they don't get, you know, they don't, they can't trust the information they're getting. Uh, and they're trying to analyze, oh, they played this song on the radio. This means that we won this battle or that, you know, this song means that we must have lost this battle. And I think about you know, us today on social media, we have a lot more information, but in some ways we're just as lost. Uh, you know, we, we can't trust uh, what we hear and what we see. And here she is with her neighbors and they're trying to piece together things uh, and, the, and they're trying not to argue and, and uh, they're trying to be safe. And, and there's nowhere that's safe anymore. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, it mixes the mundane and the sublime right, right there together. She's looking up and she's seeing these cobwebs and the dirt and the dust of the bunker is the most mundane and prosaic things you could, you could see at the same time, they're contemplating their own mortality, life and death, and just kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, dark uh chapter in the book but also somewhat hopeful because they they hear the siren and they get to run back upstairs to their lives and yet they're never truly relaxed they never truly get to go back home uh and and the chapter ends she she finally gets back upstairs she sort of collapses into her bed and is sinking in and yet her boots are right there, ready to take her back downstairs at a moment's notice. It's, it's uh, you know, the cycle just never ends. No, the other one is the Reni from Mukovar. What is very poignant in the story is that uh, their expectation that uh, Reni will return somehow. Yeah, no, this is this is a very... Also a very difficult read and a very difficult uh, chapter to translate. Uh, this young, promising Esperantist, uh, he's a dentist, he's a, he's a doctor, he's a poet. This, this young man who everybody sort of loves, he's this charismatic person, uh, goes missing. And nobody knows where he is. Uh, his aunt is looking for him and reaches out to the Esperanto uh, Esperanto Society in Zagreb. 
they can't find him. And, and we get this glimpse into what uh, ethnic cleansing looked like on a very prosaic level, uh, how people were rounded up. And then just the, 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 the absolute horror of uncertainty. Uh, nobody knows what has happened to Rene, to this young man. Uh, and people, again, they're waiting. They don't have all the information. Uh, and they're terrified, but they're hopeful. Uh, and, uh, you know, the last that anybody has ever seen or heard of Rene is just his scream. You know, it's not even an image. It's just this echo, this sound. Uh, and uh, it's imprinted on, on his brother, the last person to have heard this scream. Uh, there's this line, uh, you could see the scream on his face. You know, people are just carrying around these traumas, carrying around these uncertainties. Uh, and, and it's a very, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a reality of living, living this war. Um, I should say too that the title René from Vukovar uh, is deceptively simple. Um, you know, for people from the region, people who are familiar with the war, um, Vukovar is this symbol. It, it's a city in eastern Croatia that was absolutely devastated during the fighting, and uh, uh, the narrator says that it's kind of the Croatian Hiroshima. Um, you know, it's this it's apocalyptic kind of event. And yet, nobody really explains that. The narrator doesn't tell you uh, that this has become this, this symbolic place of catastrophe. Uh, and, and I think that is very intentional. There's a lot in the book that is sort of left half explained or unexplained uh, because she wants the reader to feel this unease, uh, you know, this this sense of, well, if you don't know what's going on, you have to pay attention. You, you, you know, you don't have the whole, the whole story. Uh, so uh, just the title for some readers uh, is very evocative, but for the average reader, uh, it's not till the end of the chapter that you understand what Vukovar itself means. Main Sarajevo, because I read about Sarajevo Seas when I was in college. Uh, so Main Sarajevo, I think, is my favorite chapter uh, of the book. Uh, in some ways, it's very different. Uh, Spomenka or, or Spomenka's narrator uh, is sitting in Zagreb and despite all these hardships going on in Zagreb, she can still watch TV. She can still, you know, have some semblance of a normal life some of the time. And she's watching Sarajevo burn. Sarajevo is the capital of, of Bosnia. And she is, is, is floored by, by what she's seeing there. You know, if, if it, there's catastrophe where she is, it's absolutely a nightmare uh, in Bosnia. But instead of dwelling on that experience, she's thrown back in time. She's thrown into her memories of Sarajevo. Uh, and what does she remember? She remembers her first love. And 
Her story is about the month of May in Sarajevo. She is preparing for the Sarajevo uh, World Youth Congress of Esperanto. Esperantists from all over the world will be coming into the city. And she's there to prepare for the, the Congress. And uh, she meets Kemal. And their love is this innocent, beautiful thing. And, and it just kind of blossoms. And, and, it's, and it's kind of this perfect, innocent, youthful moment. And then she pulls back and she says, and now, and now Sarajevo is burning. And I don't know if I will ever see Kemal again. You know, they, they, she hasn't seen him for years. It was, you know, this this puppy love, this teenage love, and and uh, but but it, the the war becomes so real for her, and it's this it's this interplay of memory. One of the things that I love about this chapter isn't just this this love story, but it's really how memory functions. She is watching the war in the present and thrown immediately into the past. And that is having her think about the future. What is going to happen when the war ends? How will I reconnect? How can I reconnect with the past when the present has has destroyed what the future might be? Uh, so it, you know, it's a story that that works on many levels. Uh, but it's also just a simple story of of love of you know this the, when you're a teenager and all your emotions uh you know are just at their their height uh and and it's a wonderful wonderful piece it's a wonderful tale the one uh, particular thing about the story is where the clock it starts ticking kemal kemal <laughs> yes 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 she brings her alarm clock with her from croatia and she you know when she brings it 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 speaks its normal language tick tock tick tock and then all of the sudden it has learned the local language and it goes kemal kemal which is the name of the boy she has a crush on uh and it's just this wonderful detail about how you know when you're in love and especially at that age it's all consuming uh but but she does this throughout the book where objects uh take on this 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 symbolic importance take on a life of their own uh you know uh when in, in alarm it's very important when she's, you know, taking her tea and stuffing her tea into her bag, or I talked about her boots. Um, there's uh, a chapter about uh, a father who is mobilized into the Croatian army and forgets his hand towel and the importance of getting him this hand towel. You know, these little objects that in a way make us human you know give we give meaning to objects but the objects give meaning to our lives and in may in sarajevo her alarm clock is this beautiful demonstration of how she is able to focus in on the minutia of of our possessions our material material world 
and how they express something about ourselves. You know, the narrator, she's not even ready to admit that she's in love with Kimmel, but her clock is, you know, they, they kind of know us better than we know ourselves. Translating uh, this particular book from Esperanto, uh, were there any specific uh, challenges? So many, so many. Um, I think, in general, translating from Esperanto, um, it can be quite challenging because of the way that the language works. So I mentioned a little bit uh, the, there are, the, the, the language is based on these roots, what are called in Esperanto radicoi radicals, uh, and you can take them and you can make any word any part of speech, and you can combine anything. So you will often have an adverb, one adverb that might combine two or three different words. And in Eng and it's one word in Esperanto, one syllable, two syllables, and in English, I might need a whole sentence just to convey, you know, some of the layers that are are going on. Um, so Esperanto tends to be very economical, uh, and English might need more space. For Stimetz's writing in particular, uh, which I said has this very sort of staccato quality to it, uh, you want to recreate that. How do you recreate? It's it's not choppy, but it is very. Uh, rhythmic and very clipped uh, and very sharp. So the challenge for me as the translator uh, was how do you recreate that that effect, that style, that voice with a language that, you know, more often needs more words to explain the same thoughts, ideas, or feelings. Uh, it's It was very challenging, but that's also what makes it so much fun. And, you know, the Esperanto literature is vast and untranslated. You know, so much of it uh, has never been read outside of Esperanto. And uh, that challenge is part of what drives me to, to read it and enjoy it and to want to share it uh, with others as a translator. The other thing that intrigued me is uh, when you wanted to get into translations. You could have taken up French, Spanish, or you know, so-called mainstream languages, right? Why Esperanto? Why Esperanto? Um, so I, I came into Esperanto through another uh, quote-unquote small language. Um, most of my personal and professional life uh, happens in Yiddish culture. So Yiddish is the language of Eastern European Jews uh, and their descendants the world over. And uh, Zamenhof, the creator of Esperanto, was a Yiddish-speaking Jew. And I became interested in Esperanto because I was, you know, researching Jewish language politics uh, in the 19th century. And Zamenhof was deeply involved in this. He was an early kind of proto-Zionist before there was any such concept of Zionism. He was involved in early experiments with, with Hebrew, uh, the revived Hebrew language. He left that behind. He dabbled a bit in experiments in, in modernizing, so-called modernizing of the Yiddish language, left that behind and came to Esperanto uh, as a project that would be both a Jewish project, but also a project for 
the world. So that's how I became interested in Esperanto. That's how uh, I entered into the world. But as soon as I learned Esperanto, this community, this and this literature, just kind of this vast landscape uh, opened before me. So I, you know, I translate from from Yiddish. I translate from Esperanto, and I do translate from a couple big languages as well. But in each of these languages, uh, I look for, you know, things that are a bit on a slant, a bit off kilter. And I, and I would say about Esperanto and Yiddish in particular, the languages I, I primarily translate from, uh, these are international languages. These are languages without a country, without a place on the map. They belong everywhere. Uh, and there is a real ethos of, of, of being everywhere, of being of the world that, that is inherent in these cultures. And that for somebody, I, you know, I live uh, a very multilingual life um, and I've always been fascinated by, by language uh, and Esperanto and Yiddish gives you access to the whole world. You can read Esperanto writers. You know, there's no geographic center. You can read Esperanto writers from, you know, Japan and China and Brazil and Hungary, and they're all talking with each other. They have all read each other. They are all riffing off of each other. There are uh, poetic forms, for instance, Japanese poetic forms that are now considered sort of native to Esperanto because Japanese Esperantists brought them into the language and others have made them grow. Uh, and this uh, sort of, it's one language, it's one community, but it gives you access to the world uh, is an idea which, which very much appeals to me. Um, you know, I think we live in a world that paradoxically, you know, is much smaller you know, you're in India, I'm in Canada, and we're just having a conversation in real time. This is a miracle. You know, a hundred years ago, this would have been unthinkable. Uh, but at the same time, we live in a world where people are putting up borders. Uh, you know, they're sort of breaking apart from each other. Uh, and I look towards uh, languages like Esperanto and languages like Yiddish. Yiddish is the language of a particular people and culture, uh, but it also is a place uh, that is very open and very, uh, um, very much about exchange and very spread out. You know, uh, these languages transcend borders. So that's a very long answer to a very simple question. Please tell us about uh, contemporary literature in Esperanto. As I've been saying, the, the world of contemporary literature in Esperanto is, is very diverse and very vast. Um, there are uh, literary journals. There are, you know, sort of all over the world. And in every sort of instance of, of Esperanto literature, you can see this, this global collaboration. Uh, so, for instance, one of the leading literary journals is called Belletra Almanaco. Uh, this is sort of uh, Belletra Almanac. Uh, and it's published in New York. But if you look at the masthead of who works on it, the editors are from Hungary, from India, from Spain, from Brazil. I mean, you have, you know, four or five continents just on the editorial board. Uh, and this really 
uh, I think is characteristic of what Esperanto literature is like today. We're not talking about huge numbers of people, but people are from all over the place and they really are reading each other. It's a very fast-paced conversation that happens. Everybody reads each other's works. Everybody is responding to everybody. Um, You have all kinds of genres, uh, you know, novels, poetry, uh, theater. Um, one of the things that is, is really nice, as I've said, you have poetic forms, you have different kinds of, of influences from literature from outside the community uh, that, that seep in rather naturally. Uh, and translation is at the center of, of contemporary Esperanto literature. In a way, it, it really is not, in at least in Anglophone literature, or I, I should say at least in North America, uh, you know, in North America, we, we talk about translation as a niche in the literary industry. Um, we talk about the 3% problem that only 3% of books published are, are books in translate are, are, are in translation, uh, in the Esperanto world, books in translation are at the very heart of the literary conversation. Uh, people are experimenting pushing the bounds of the language and the literature with translations. And then that feeds into uh, what's called original literature, uh, literature that is written from the get-go in Esperanto. Uh, and it's, it's, as I say, a vast expanse. It's just, it feels like there is, there is so much out there and, uh, and it can be very playful. People love to work with wordplay. Um, but then there are writers like like Stimetz, who sort of have this very tight control of the language, and uh, it's a pleasure to to plunge into, uh, and you really you really are welcomed into the community. That's that's the other thing because it is a small literary community. They're very excited uh, when newcomers arrive, so they're very supportive of my work translating out of Esperanto, but. Uh, often I have these conversations with writers or with, with editors in the, in the community and they say, oh, do you want to try writing a poem? Do you want to try writing a story in Esperanto? We would love to, you know, cultivate you and, and bring you into that side of the community. Um, so this openness, uh, is really a value there. And, uh, any curious listeners, uh, who don't know Esperanto, there's there's wonderful literature to read if you if you do learn it and if you do know Esperanto, uh, please join me in in you know translating this literature and sharing it uh, with others. You almost become like a brand ambassador to Esperanto translation, I guess. Perhaps, perhaps Esperanto is going to go viral. You know, that's a, that's a big responsibility. That's a big responsibility, right? That's interesting. I feel like you know in for. Again, in quotes, small languages, there is this pressure because the literature doesn't necessarily get translated uh, or communities outside of, you know, the home community don't necessarily know about it. And there is a little bit of pressure for you to get it right, for you to pick the right works, for you to translate them in the right way. Um, It's an interesting tension. You know, if you translate from a big, quote unquote, big language you have to contend with, you know, 
agents and presses and all of this infrastructure. And that has its own uh, challenges and own pressures. Uh, and in some ways, if you translate from small languages, you can get around all that and you can play around and you're much more free. At the same time, you know, you become, like you say, a brand ambassador. You're an ambassador for this culture. You know, you wouldn't be if you were translating from Spanish, let's say, where there's lots of people who 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 do this. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting situation. But so sure, am I a brand ambassador? I, I will take that. I I I I will wear that badge proudly. Tell us about the process of getting this book published. Uh, so this is a book that I read and fell in love with. Um, you know, translators from small languages have to love the books they translate uh, because you are the advocate. You know, you are the person that's going to make it happen. And really, uh, the translation of this book happened almost informally. I fell in love with the book and I was having a drink with uh, a friend of mine who is an incredible translator, uh, primarily from Russian, uh, Boris Traluk, an award-winning translator. Boris is a fabulous translator. And we were having a couple drinks, and I was telling him about this book that I read that, that was just this wonderful little book. And he said, you know what? Translate a sample of it. I want to share it with my friend, uh, another translator, Shuk, uh, who at the time was the, or, or, or still works with Phoneme Media, which is now an imprint of Deep Vellum, used to be a, a, an independent publisher now, now housed at Deep Vellum. And uh, so Boris introduced me to Shuk, and I shared with him this chapter, and, and Phoneme and Deep Vellum, uh, you know, they have this, this emphasis on, on, you know, small languages or vo or or voices, even in, in big languages that, you know, you don't hear elsewhere. And uh, there's this real sense of justice. You know, they are doing this with a real purpose. And uh, it just seemed like the perfect place for this book in English and, and uh, Shook and everybody at Phoneme and now everybody at Deep Vellum, they really care about their translators and their books, and it and it really uh, it seemed uh, fated. It seemed like it it was just the the right place to be. So you know, generally a translator is shopping around the book, trying to find you know where it should be and 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 how to get the attention of editors. This book, uh, it was really it was quite magical. It it just kind of uh, found the right place at the right time very quickly and i'm very grateful uh for that that very smooth and and fruitful creative process the book deserves all the help that it is getting <laughs> thank you thank you no i believe books also they have their own destiny like people you're absolutely right books have a destiny just like people that's amazing no please read the Last paragraph from Maine, Sarajevo, both in Esperanto and in English. Kun plezuro. With pleasure. I get it. You don't have to translate. <laughs> That's the thing about Esperanto. Some, sometimes you don't need to translate. Uh, okay, so this is from uh, Maine, Sarajevo. 
kiam la milito finiĝos, la paco revenos. Ke mal sendos tre klaron mesaĝon. Mi vivas, kaj ĉiuj kiuj mi amas same. Kaj kiam la trajnoj de nove veturos, mi rekontiĝos. Mi rakontos al li, kiel mi sonĝis, ke forbrulis lia diplomo de la Pekino Universitato. Li regardos min por nei la incubon, kaj liaj okuloj estos kongrestempe naivaj. Neglegeblos en ili, kiom de teruraĵo ili vidis. Ni manĝos vinberojn, memori al tiuj, kiuj ni lavas ĉe la iama baŝĉarŝa. Ĉu memoras vi la sonon de la frapo sur la krupo kruĉo? Tiom estos paco, kaj la frukto gustos je frukto, kaj ne je morto. Now in my English translation. And when the trains are running again, we will meet. I'll tell him how I dreamt that his diploma from Beijing University was lost in a fire. He'll look at me as if to refute the nightmare, and his eyes will be as naive as they were at the time of the Congress. I won't be able to read in them how much agony he has seen. We'll eat grapes, remembering those we washed in the offices in old Baschiarsha. Do you remember the sound of the water hitting the copper? That's when there will be peace, and fruit will taste like fruit, and not like death. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Oh, it's... Absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so very much. In Esperanto, we say, Koran Dankon, a heartfelt thanks. <laughs> <laughs>